You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Genesis 3 verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you in advance for your teaching of that word, Father. We, we do look to you this morning collectively as we all collectively sit under your word. And Father, we look for you, Lord, to instruct us and teach us uh, from your word, Father, that, um, Lord, we may be uh, made more and more uh, into the image of Christ. So, Father, we thank you. For these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I wish that I could say that I planned things this way, but I that's hardly the truth. I I uh, uh, I wish that I could say that I planned things so that this morning's text would fall on a communion Sunday, but <laughs> that's not the case. But I'm really thankful that it did, and that'll make more sense here in a few minutes. But um I'm so thankful that uh, uh, that we can come to the subject of the tree of life uh, on a, a communion Sunday. Now, just a recap for where we've been. We've been spending uh, a number of weeks on the second half of Genesis 3. And uh, I think you'll agree that this chapter is so essential to our understanding. How could we make any sense of the mess we're in if we didn't have these verses? It, it just wouldn't make any sense at all. Uh, it explains what's wrong with the world. You know, we can think of uh, all of the songs, you know. Um, I thought of three really quickly this morning as I was thinking about that subject, you know. Uh, what's wrong with the world is a subject that everybody ponders from time to time. And, you know, you can think of uh, song lyrics that you hear on the radio. You know, something's wrong with the world today. Or if I could change the world or... I'm waiting for the world to change. I mean, we think of all of these songs and that's just three that I thought of really kind of quickly. Um, we could sit around and probably come up with many, many more. Uh, we recognize that something's wrong with the world. Genesis 3 tells us exactly what it is. Uh, so it's very foundational. It also explains what's wrong with you and I. Uh, so much of the time when the question and subject comes up of what's wrong with the world, we have a... a a funny way of exempting ourselves as being part of the problem. Uh, we look at it uh, kind of in a, what's wrong out there. Well, what's wrong out there is sometimes we're out there. Uh, that's what's wrong out there. Uh, what's wrong with the world is what's wrong with, with you and I and with everyone else. Genesis 3 explains the unique challenges, and I might add hurts that women face. We study that in verse 16. And same, same for men. It explains the unique challenges and hurts that men face. It explains the unique challenges that marriage 
faces. It explains the unique challenges that families face. We'll see more of that as we turn the chapter to uh, turn the page to chapter four. Rather, we'll see the uh, family dysfunction that results from the fall. But as I've been saying, uh, it also offers the God-given solution to all of this. You'll recall that we started in verse fifteen of Genesis chapter three, which is really odd. I don't usually do that. When we start a new series, we usually start in chapter 1 with verse 1. We started in chapter 3 with verse 15, which is unusual. I don't usually do that, but I explained, some of you recall, six weeks ago now, I explained my rationale for that, and it's uh, quite simply, I would like one of these days maybe to to put a series of talks together on Genesis 1 and 2, uh, because I think it warrants it. It really warrants... uh, taking time to do that. So I table that for now. And in previous Bible studies and previous sermons, I've made such constant reference to Genesis 3, 1 through 14 that I didn't feel we needed to really recap all that. So we picked up with Genesis 3, 15, which is the first utterance of the gospel. And there's a a principle that I've been making a lot of noise about that in Scripture, whenever we come across something that's real, real bad, grace is always nearby, isn't it? You'll see that over and over again. Um, and what could be worse than the fall of humanity, you know, at least for us? Um, and there's Genesis 3.15. There's the gospel. Now, this morning we come to the conclusion of the chapter. And in this text, we find mystery. I mean, mystery. If you like mystery, I mean, there's your verses. I mean, you want to talk about mystery. There's just mystery everywhere. Uh, We find mystery. In this text, we find tragedy. In this text, we find sadness. Um, But in this text, we also discover that grace really isn't um, too far away. So I thought, you know, maybe I ought to call the message mystery, tragedy, sadness, and grace. I thought maybe that would be a good title. I'll leave you to decide whether that was good or not. Um, But let's start with mystery. What am I talking about that this is so mysterious? Look at verse 22 with me. There you see um, the Lord God said, so this is the Lord speaking. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us. Uh, Who is us? Maybe Maybe the first mystery that we come to. Uh, secondly, there's this tree of life. What is up with the tree of life? Have you ever asked that question? What's up with the tree of life? Uh, that'd be another mystery. Uh, what's up with eating and living forever? Uh, what, what, do we, what do we make of that? Uh, what's up with these creatures, the cherubim? Uh, what's the story with them? And what about this flaming sword that's being swung? Now, This is just a couple. I mean, as we go through, I mean, I think we're going to ask more and more questions. As we begin to answer these questions, we will have questions, which is one of the things I really like about Scripture, actually. The more you study it, the more questions you get. I remember once upon a time when I was just doing my undergrad work in Beaver Beaver Falls up at Geneva, I was thinking, boy, you know, man, when I get done here, I'm going to have like so many answers to things. And man, by the time I get done with seminary, I'm going to have all these other answers, you know, My goodness, you get done with seminary and you think, you know what, all I got is more questions. Um, And that's really kind of, I think that's marvelous because when we step into eternity, that's the way it'll be. Um, God is, you know, he's infinite. 
And we can ask him questions every day and every hour of every day, and he can give us answers, and his answers are going to just be so profound that we're going to be like, wow, well, what about this and what about this? And this can go on actually forever. So if you like to learn, that is, uh, that is just tremendous news. But enough about that. Um, I think we should try to say something about each of these subjects. Each of these subjects actually could be a series of sermons in and of themselves, so I'll have to be brief and... I'll have to discipline myself here to be brief because this is one of those messages, I'll tell you right now, it is, it is ripe to go foul very quickly. And I'll tell you how it can go really bad. It can go really bad if I back up a truck load of details and I back it up to that second row of seats there and I just dump it on you. Um, that is something that I want to try to discipline myself not to do um, because it's um, you, what, what happens when you sit... I know when I sit and somebody does that to me, what, what happens to me? After I get unburied out of all those details, I leave here thinking, what was that all about? I don't know. But uh, uh, so we have to try to discipline ourselves not to do that. But all of that being said, let's take a look at the first one, us. If you look to verse 22, then the Lord God said, okay, uh, before we get to the us, notice that phrase, then. That reminds us of the context, doesn't it? Then the Lord God said, okay, then, okay. In other words, after, after what? After God had made those garments that we talked about last week. Um, after he'd made the garments. You remember there's Adam and Eve and all this time they've been standing there in their shame. What are they wearing? They're wearing these silly fig leaves and they're full of shame. And God is full of grace and he makes suitable clothes for them and he covers them. So it's in, the, it's in the context of this mercy that we come to verse 22. After the Lord God had made these garments of skin, after he has clothed them, uh, verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. You know, there's another mystery. How is it that we become like God in knowing good and evil? We're not going to get to that this morning, but there's another mystery. But back to us. Uh, the question before us right now is who is or who are the us? Uh, what, is, what is going on here? Well, the, the first thing that should be said is this isn't the first time we encounter this. If we're reading Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, uh, you may recall from Genesis 1. In fact, if you turn back to Genesis 1 and you look at verse 26, you'll find it, we've already um, come across something like this. Uh, in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So in both of these passages, the Lord is speaking and in both of these passages, he's speaking in a, in a plural sense, isn't he? Okay, well, again, the question is before us, who is the us? Now, one of the answers that has been classically given to that question is uh, that the Lord is speaking to angels. Um, but there's a, there's a serious problem with that, uh, with that um, interpretation. And the problem with it is we're not created in the image of angels, are we? We're said to be created in the image of God. So for that reason, I think we, we are right to reject that answer. 
another answer that is given is that God is speaking in the way of princes. Has anybody heard that one before? He's speaking in the way of princes, in the way of, of kings. Uh, it's a plurality of majesty, if you will, uh, where uh, kings or princes would speak of themselves in a plural way. Uh, problem with that is that kind of rhetoric comes long after all of this. Uh, um, that, that's to be rejected as well. The position that I take is that what we have here is a conversation that God, God is having with himself. Some of them say, well, is God talking to himself? Yeah, actually he is. <laughs> the Father's talking to the Son and talking to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit and the Son are talking to the Father. Of course they talk to each other. And I think what we have here, what we're being permitted to do here is to actually eavesdrop in on what they're saying. And I was thinking about this this morning. I was thinking about this point this morning and I was thinking there is another mystery. I mean, if we were permitted to eavesdrop into what God is saying, what kind of language does God use as he communicates with the, the father, communicates with the son? And what kind of language is it? What kind of words? What? How does that even work? Um, you see the 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 mystery that's that that rests in all of this. So, I think that's what we have in verse twenty six of chapter one. Is God is speaking to Himself, and I think we have the same thing going on in chapter three and verse twenty two. Then the Lord God said, uh, "Behold, the man has become like one of us. God, the Father, speaking to the Son and speaking to uh, the Holy Spirit." And that brings us to our next topic, which is the tree of life. Um, if you look there, uh, verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life. What are we to make of the tree of life? Well, um, the first time the tree is mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis 2 and verse 9. If you just look really the opposite page probably in most of your Bibles to Genesis 2 and verse 9. There we read, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we see God's creating this beautiful garden and he's furnishing this beautiful garden with this mysterious tree which is called the tree of life. Now, there's one thing that we can know about God, but when he creates things, he creates things with a certain uh, purpose. There's a purpose for everything. God doesn't just make a mess and leave parts laying over here and over there and everywhere. He's a God of order. So everything has its purpose. Everything has its place. Uh, so the tree of life, of course, has a powerful purpose here. And let me just say this. The tree of life serves here in what we might call a sacramental sense. Uh, someone might be sitting here thinking, oh, okay, I got it. I've always wondered. Now it's been a sacramental sense. Thanks. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> a sacramental sense. Well, in the sense that we come to the table. It's in the sense that we come to the table. Um, you know, here soon we're going to be uh, going to the communion table. And there's two things that we need to think about as we come to the table or as we think of the tree of life. And that first one is sign. And the second is the thing signified. Sign, thing, signify. Does that make sense? Okay, so there's a sign, 
and there's something that is signified. Okay, we have the signs here. What are the signs? Well, we have we have the bread and we have the cup. Okay, what are what are what is the bread and the cup all about? Well, in Luke 22 verse 19, as Jesus is sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, he said while holding the bread, "Quote: This is my body, which is given for you." This is my body, which is given for you. And he took the cup and said, quote, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, obviously, Christ's blood had not been shed yet. It was still flowing within the covert of his of his veins, wasn't it? While he was at that at that last supper, he's holding the cup up. He says, this is my blood now. Is his blood in that cup? And the answer is no. Would anyone around the table have mistakenly thought that, okay, literally Christ's blood is in that cup? No, absolutely not. What everyone would have understood quite plainly is that this is a sign. This is very clearly a sign. And this sign signifies something. And in the same way, when he took the bread, you know, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Okay, the bread is separate from Christ's body, is it not? I mean, are we to think that Jesus is a loaf of bread? Very clearly not. The bread is a sign which signifies something. Now, what do these signs signify? They signify Christ's death on the cross in our place, do they not? So you have the sign. Uh, these elements serve as a sign. And we have the thing which is signified, which is Christ's death on the cross. Now, when we take this to the Garden of Eden, we find something similar in the tree of life. The tree of life was a pledge of life. It was a sign, if you will, of a pledge of life. Uh, commenting on this, John Calvin writes, quote, he gave the tree of life its name, not because it can confer on the man that life with which he had been previously endued, but in order that it might be a symbol and memorial of the life which he had received from God. Now, let me read that again and explain a couple of places. It's hard to sit and read it and listen to a quote like that and get it. God gave the tree of life its name, not because the tree of life could give life in and of itself is basically what Calvin is saying. Okay. But in order that it might become a symbol and memorial of the life which had already been given, you see. That's why I say the tree should be understood in a sacramental sense. In the tree of life, Adam had a visible testimony of the fact that his life was not his own creation and that uh, breathing and living is something that he doesn't sustain in and of himself. Uh, but that God not has not only given him life, he is sustaining his life. And let me just pause right now just to make this a little bit, let me, let me clench this one. Because we're told in Genesis 2 that when God created man, he created him out of the dust, didn't he? And he didn't take him and have him go eat a tree so that he could have live, or have life, did he? God breathed into this corpse of dust, if you will, 
And Adam became a living being. Right? You can read Genesis 2 later this afternoon and see that that will be the case. Uh, The tree of life stood as a memorial testimony of the fact that God had given uh, life to uh, to Adam. So Adam, as he saw the tree of life, he could see that each breath was owed to the kindness and love of God. And furthermore, the life, the tree of life became a wonderful symbol of eternal life and pure and unstained fellowship with God. Does that make sense? Now, all of this gets destroyed by the rebellion. So when we come to our text this morning, we find the sign being taken away. They're being taken away. Uh, just like excommunication from the church would would remove our access from the table, wouldn't it? The sign would be taken away. We find the signs taken away and it's being guarded by a powerful angelic being and that leads to our next topic, the cherubim. And I'm watching some of your faces, so I'm going to exclude some of the details I have here. I'll do my best to do that. And that's, that's the danger of these kind of messages. It's like you get the truck, you dump, and sorry, I don't want to do that. I want us to leave here with some really concrete things here because we can visit this again another time. But look with me to verse 24. There the Lord drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. It's like cherubim, what in the world? Uh, a cherubim flaming with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, what are we to make of the cherubim? Now, if you read your Bible often, you've come across this word before. In the ESV translation, it occurs something like 67 times. Uh, cherub occurs about 27 times, so... You know, here we're, we're close to 100, 100 occurrences. That's a pretty popular word. Uh, so we come across it. Uh, maybe the best place for us to start would be Ezekiel 9. You know, stay in Gen- keep your place in Genesis 3. But if you turn to Ezekiel 9, uh, page 697, if you're using the church's Bible. Ezekiel 9. And this is also a very mysterious passage. But the verse that I want to show you is very clear. Ezekiel 9 and verse 3. Now, while you're turning there, I'll just say the context of this passage is judgment upon Jerusalem for its wicked practices. Babylon has already destroyed it. And the exiles have been, Ezekiel would have been one of the exiles. Daniel would have been one of the exiles. They've, you know, they've been extracted from the Holy Land and taken to Babylon. Ezekiel is in Babylon. Um, And he has this vision. And in verse 3, You read the words, now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from what? The cherub. There's that word. The glory of the the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested. See that? Um, Now. Again, without bogging you down with a bunch of details here, let me make one simple connection. And that connection is the connection between the glory of God and these angelic beings that are called cherubim. Or we could put it another way, uh, a connection between the presence of God and these creatures who are called cherub or cherubim. Okay. Uh, Now, with that in mind, let's turn to Exodus 25. You know, Exodus, some of you have read Exodus and 
you know, you've got you've got the exciting story of the plagues and you've got all these stories, some stories in the wilderness. You know, Israel is at the beginning of Exodus. Israel is is uh, in captivity They're They've they've been forced into slavery um, uh, by Pharaoh. And they cry out to God, to God to deliver them from slavery. And, and the Lord delivers them as he delivers them. You know, you have the story of them crossing over the Red Sea on dry ground. He brings them out into uh, the wilderness. And um, the, the context here that we come to in Exodus 25 is uh, God is uh, preparing a place for worship. And he's giving Moses instructions on how to uh, put this place of worship together, namely the tabernacle and its furnishings. And one of these furnishings, in fact, the principal furnishing of the, of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we have discussed here. If you look at Exodus 25, starting with verse 10, if you follow along with me here, um, the Lord is telling Moses, they shall make an Ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, has everyone ever seen like an artist's conception of what the ark looked like? Has everyone seen it at once? Raise your hand if you've seen it. Nobody's seen like a, like in a lot of study Bibles, sometimes they'll have a little picture. It's like a little box. You know, it's, it's not very big. It's probably not much bigger than the table right here. And there were hooks on all four sides. And then there was these poles that went through it, and, and, and the tabernacle was portable. So it was meant to be taken up and put down and carried all over the place, which is what they did. They carried it everywhere. Uh, and the poles were put on it so that the priests could carry the Ark of the Covenant about. So you have this acacia wood box, if you will. Uh, and what God has just given to Moses is the instructions on how to make this acacia wood box, which would be overlaid with gold. It would be quite heavy, uh, actually. Now, look with me to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two what? Cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Now, before we go any further, let's stop at verse 21 there. Imagine that the table is the ark. On top of the ark is a lid called the mercy seat. On top of the lid are these two winged angelic beings called cherubim who have their faces down but facing each other in the center uh, of the 
uh, of the lid, if you will, when their wings are stretched out. Can we see that? Verse 22, there God is speaking to Moses. He says to Moses, it is there. Where? Between these cherub. It is there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now, notice that the cherubim are just under the glory of God. And that's what Ezekiel is talking about in his vision. He sees the glory of God depart from the cherub upon which it had rested. In other words, God is departing from the temple is what's going on there. He's departing from the temple. Now, there's so many other things here that could be said, but make one simple connection between these angelic creatures, the cherub, and the presence of God or the glory of God. Make that connection. Now, with these mysteries set aside over here, now, I'll wrap this up here in a few minutes. With those things all set aside, let, let's, let's go back to Genesis 3.22 and let's take a look at the story here. Because if I turn this into some kind of mystery message, I am not preaching this text. Is there mystery in this text? Yes, there's mystery in this text. Is this text simply to be a mystery that we can all sit here and gawk at, like emotion-free? No, because it's a tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. Uh, take, take a look at our text here. Uh, think about the context, if you will. Adam and Eve have turned from God in rebellion, haven't they? They've turned from him in rebellion. They lost the intimacy that they've had. And when we look to verse 22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, you notice that sentence, verse 22. I haven't called any attention to it yet, but notice how like when you read it out loud, it sounds like it's not finished. It's because it's not finished. That's why it's an unfinished sentence. That's a story for another day, but it's an unfinished sentence. Verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. He drove out the man. That's strong. What did he do? He ran him out of there. He ran him out of there. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. This mighty creature he placed, these creatures. And in their hand is a flaming sword turning every way. In other words, there simply is no access back to the tree, to the Garden of Eden at this point. There's no access. No access. Now, um, what has happened? What has happened is Adam and Eve have forfeited their right to live in the Garden of Eden. They've lost it. And the application to us is the same. When Adam, when Adam fell, we fell. You know, I mean, listen, I wasn't born in a beautiful garden. I was born in City Hospital. Not a beautiful garden. Not against City Hospital, but it's not a beautiful garden. <laughs> and you weren't born in a beautiful garden, were you? We're not born into a beautiful garden. 
You know, I often reflect on this. Some of you have heard me say this because I think about it a lot, especially like today is a very pretty day, but it's not really a warm day. But really soon we're going to be getting those those days that are like perfect. You know, we're going to get one here shortly. It's not too cold. It's not too hot. Usually most people agree if it's between 72 and 75 degrees there, it's pretty, pretty perfect. You got the blue sky. You've got the see, it just brings a smile to your face as I talk about it, doesn't it? The blue sky, the sunlight, um, 72, 75 degrees, maybe a, maybe a relative humidity of about 40%. That's what most people like is about 40%. Um, you ever notice how quickly we adjust to that? It's like immediately we adjust to that. And you ever notice how our mood changes? I mean, as soon as I start talking about it, I'm watching all of your, every one of you are smiling. Well, a couple of you aren't smiling. I don't know. Now you're smiling. No, some of you still aren't smiling. I don't, I don't know what to say about that, but most of us are smiling. Why? Because we like those kind of days, don't we? It's because it reminds us of home. I think that's what the Garden of Eden was like, something similar to that. Every day. It reminds us of home. But we've lost it, haven't we? And that's why you can't preach this text like it's, a, it's just a, a mystery series. It's a tragedy, isn't it? And it's sad that when God would come into the garden in the cool of the day that, that now Adam and Eve would flee from him and be afraid of him instead of embracing their father the way they once embraced their father. It's a sad day. It's a tragic day. But it's also, there's grace here. There's grace here. And you say, well, where's the grace? Well, be as we were reading from Exodus, let's use that. You know, after being delivered from their exile in Egypt, after being delivered um, from their, their slavery in Egypt, Israel is brought out into the wilderness, Right? God delivers his people out of Egypt. He brings them out into the wilderness. Now, what does God want to do? He wants to worship. He wants them to worship. He builds, he instructs them very carefully how to build a temple, a tabernacle, if you will. And he gives them all these details on how to build this place of worship. And they build this place of worship. They build the, the outer court, if you will. And then they build the tabernacle itself, which was a tent. And inside the tent, the most significant thing inside the tent was the holy place. And the most significant thing in the holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And upon the Ark of the Covenant, the center on top, on the lid, were two cherub. And they're not swinging swords. There's no sword. And I think when we read that verse in Exodus 25, I think we're to remember that the last time we encountered these creatures, they were swinging swords. Here, they're not swinging a sword. And when we come to these creatures, we need to make the connection that the presence of God is very near. There's access. And let's make another connection. Jesus Famously says in the in the Gospels that if you destroy the temple, 
I'll rebuild it in three days. Why does he say that? Because he's making reference to his body, which was in the tomb for three days. And when his body is raised, what happens? Jesus is the temple, isn't he? We could put it another way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, all of this points to Christ, doesn't it? It all points to Christ. He is truly the way. The flaming sword has been put away. And a way has been opened. Christ has come to take us home. Isn't that beautiful? Do you want to go home? To where you belong? Jesus has come to take us. I ask you to turn to one more passage at the opposite end of the Bible to Revelation 22. Revelation 22. I couldn't think of a better chapter to conclude this message in than Revelation 22. It just gets all put together for us here in Revelation 22. We may forget a lot of the details I've shared this morning, but I think we're going to get enough of them that when we read this, we're going to say, you know, I think I get this. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river. What? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit for each month. How we to understand that. It's a symbol, isn't it? It's a symbol. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servant what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed are the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And if you skip down to verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. Jesus is bidding us. You want to come home? Come on. We say, how do we come home? By trusting Him. Trusting Him. Trusting His promises. Trusting His personal performance of keeping God's law. He kept it all perfectly for us. Trusting His sacrifice on the cross. Trusting His word that says it is finished. Trusting the resurrection which proves and validates and authenticates every single thing that Jesus ever taught or said. Trusting your soul to all of this. That's how we come home, isn't it? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these precious truths that are so hard to communicate without our eyes filling with 
and welling with tears and father we it's hard for us to even get these things out father with being out being overwhelmed with tears of joy and just amazement father you are so good to us father we we thank you and we praise you father we thank you and praise you in jesus precious name we pray amen and amen